Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel. My name's Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm here today with the authors of African Peacekeeping, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. In this book, Dr. Jonathan Fisher and Dr. Nina Whelan explore the stories of Africa's contemporary history and politics through the lens of peacekeeping. In this book, based on over a decade of research across 10 countries, they examine specifically peacekeeping by Africans and argue that, quote, African peacekeeping should be understood not simply as an adjunct technical activity, but as a complex set of practices deeply embedded within and entangled with Africa's contemporary political economy. So in the book, they demonstrate how peacekeeping is woven throughout a number of areas um, and is not just something about how many country, how many troops this country has sent where, um, but there's actually really a lot more to it. So thank you both for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. If I could ask you please to start off each introducing yourselves, your academic backgrounds, and then explain to us how you came together to write this book. Uh, yeah, sure. Nina, do you want to go first? Um, sure. Yeah. So um, I am now an associate professor uh, in political science at Lund University and the director of Africa program at Egmont Institute um, of International Relations in Belgium. And before I ended up here, I was um, doing several different postdoctoral um Project uh, positions at the University of Antwerp uh, in Belgium, University of Stellenbosch in Southern Africa, and Université Libre de Bruxelles in Belgium. Um, and um, before that, I also worked um, as a postdoctoral uh, scholar at the Royal Military Academy in Belgium. Uh, and yeah, I'm Jonathan Fisher, and I'm a professor global security in the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham in the UK, where I'm also head of department at the moment. Uh, And the work that I do is focused on authoritarianism and security and the interrelationship between the two. And so peacekeeping is particularly interesting for me because, um, as we'll talk about, those two things intersect a great deal and uh, reinforce or undermine each other in a variety of different ways. And a lot of the work that I've done since you know starting my time as a researcher has been focused on East Africa, but also Southern Africa to some extent as well. Uh, in terms of um, how Nina and I came to came to write this book, uh, well, we were introduced to each other about ten years ago, I think, by a, a mutual mutual friend and colleague at a conference uh, in Edinburgh, I think it was, and we uh, have been at lots of different events on and off over the last decade talking about peacekeeping and sharing ideas of it. And eventually, uh, a few years ago, we um, 
were having a drink at a conference and we decided that it was about time that we started writing something together on this. So we had a brainstorm and uh, about all the different ways in which we think about peacekeeping uh, in the African context and what we would like to write about that. And that's pretty much uh, how we came to write this book. I think I'm correct in saying that, aren't I, Nina? Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much the story. I I perhaps should say that my my research focus over the past ten years has been military interventions in Africa, and not just um, not just war and conflict, but also peace operations or stabilizing uh, interventions in Africa, which is complementing pretty well what Jonathan's focus has been. So that's also why we started talking about this from the beginning. Um, that our two uh, research agendas overlapped and complemented each other. So it made sense to put them together and and try to explore this theme uh, in a book. So talking about African peacekeeping um, and the militaries involved here, there's obviously quite a lot of backstory before we get to the African militaries that are engaged in peacekeeping now. So can you explain for us what the significance of, of the colonial genesis and influence of many modern African militaries and how that influences their involvement in peacekeeping? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, obviously, the sort of colonial imperialist enterprise has had a really profound effect on contemporary African politics and international relations in lots of different ways. Um, and that's something which you know, scholars have been writing about for a long time. But the kind of colonial um, history and, and present is, is not really talked about that much in relation to peacekeeping specifically, um, which we think is a, a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, inaccuracy or a missed opportunity. I think one of the reasons for that is because peacekeeping you know, African peacekeepers are often associated with the um, creation of the Organization of African Unity, or in particular, the the African Union in the early 2000s, and the kind of peacekeeping architecture that went around that. So it's often thought about in sort of quite contemporary, forward-looking terms. But we think there's there's lots of good reasons to um, place some of contemporary African peacekeeping in the context of the history of colonialism and the colonial legacy. Uh, first and foremost, because during the, the colonial era, particularly um, you know, following the Second World War, when there was actually quite a lot of um, engagement by uh, European powers in seeking to build up aspects of the colonial state, um, one of the things that they really focused on there was enhancing and the centrality of the military and the security services um, into um, into the state. Often in in the context of you know counterinsurgency or um, uh, other sort of violent activities, what they didn't focus on, this being the colonial powers, is really building up um, civilian institutions uh, and the capacity of, you know, participatory civilian institutions. So what happened when lots of African countries became independent is that independent governments inherited um, quite uh, advanced uh, extensive security and military apparatuses, but quite nascent governance, civilian government apparatuses and participatory institutions, you know, parliaments, that sort of thing. 
And so the military and the security services have been at the heart of the African state in many contexts for for a very long time. Um, and I think that this is this is significant because obviously the key players in African peacekeeping are African militaries and African security services. Um, and we think it's important to understand that history of how significant they've been in um, the African state apparatus since the colonial era for understanding their role in, in contemporary African politics. There's also the sort of legacy of um, the types of armed forces, police forces, and so forth that were built up during the colonial era. Um, These were often, of course, um, quite violent, unaccountable, uh, extractive um, institutions and organizations. And while there's been, you know, very significant changes to the the nature and and structure of uh, many of these forces across the continent. There are also a number of countries where scholars argue that you see a kind of um, uh, contemporary echo of many of these phenomena today. So one of the things we talk about in the book is the case of Ghana and the Ghanaian police force. And a range of scholars have written about how um, the contemporary Ghanaian police force has a reputation for being sort of unaccountable um, and, you know, violent in some ways, um, it's a kind of legacy of the colonial era. And importantly, the Ghanaian police force is also involved in peacekeeping operations. So there's there's a link, there's a link there. I think the other dimension of this, which we talk a little bit about in the book, is uh, perhaps a little bit more tenuous, but nonetheless relevant. In the in the sort of dying days of the colonial enterprise in Africa, many European powers basically made use of African soldiers um, and and officers increasingly in so-called pacification campaigns, which is obviously a euphemism which which was used um, for what were effectively uh, counterinsurgency operations and other efforts to put down, uh, you know, uprisings or um, insurgencies or revolutions. And this often involved, um, by the 1950s, the um, kind of dropping or transportation of African armies or, you know, colonial African armies um, from one colony to another. So we see examples of this, you know, from Uganda to Kenya against the Mau Mau rebels or um, in Nyasaland, uh, which is, you know, former um, named for, for Malawi today. So we saw a range of deploying of African soldiers, and increasingly these armies were Africanized, um, you know, using uh, African uh, soldiers up to the level of officer um, in different territories. Um, and there are, so there are some sort of arguably echoes of this um, today in the way that we do see um, in African peacekeeping the deploying of soldiers from one territory for for you know, to another in in the name of um, creating peace or building a particular um, form of, of peace. I mean, that's obviously um, slightly more uh, tenuous than the other point that I made on this. And clearly, African peacekeeping today has a very different set of norms and ideas around it. But we think it is important to, to keep this history and legacy in mind, because obviously, um, there will still be people um, alive today um, who do remember this sort of colonial pacification era and soldiers being you know, transmuted from elsewhere in the continent um, in the name of uh, what the colonial powers called peace, albeit not peacekeeping. Um, So we think that there's an important context to be kept in mind there, um, even if many of the other um, kind of levels and associations African peacekeeping has today are, are, you know, much more contemporary. 
thank you for explaining that. Um, and I think it links quite nicely to sort of my next question, which is that African countries that choose to engage in peacekeeping do so for a variety of reasons. Um, and sometimes that can be for reasons that don't necessarily seem to be on the same sort of democracy promotion page that the United Nations maybe talks about or um, peacekeeping is sort of seen as. Um, And in fact, you discuss a number of examples in the book about how peacekeeping can be used on purpose by authoritarian regimes in order to do what you describe as, quote, regime maintenance. What is the link there between peacekeeping and regime maintenance? Uh, yeah, sure. So by regime maintenance, um, we, we basically mean the, the strategies through which uh, a particular government seeks to maintain itself in power. Uh, and there are obviously different elements to that, um, financial, diplomatic, economic, but also normative as well, the sort of ideas that they, um, they promote domestically and internationally about their, their right and legitimacy to rule. And yeah, certainly one of the things that we... Um, touch upon quite a lot in the book is the distinction we see um, around this uh, with some more authoritarian African states, um, and particularly the way in which peacekeeping has been used by some of them. So we we talk particularly about cases like Uganda um, or Burundi to effectively subsidize the armed forces and the military apparatus of the state in a way which becomes um, a semi-permanent element of the state, effectively. So if you think about a country like Uganda, uh, which is, you know, the current government has been in power since 1986, um, current president, um, Yuari Museveni, uh, also since January 86. He came from a uh, military rebel movement, a liberation movement, as it was called, and it was uh, very much a, a military operation. So they took power through armed you know, revolution. And when they took power, they transferred the institutions and units of the rebel movement into the contemporary Ugandan state. So they're their sort of governing rebel council became the parliament, the, you know, the commander in chief of the rebel movement became the president, and the soldiers in that rebel group became the backbone of the you know, revised, reframed Ugandan army. And for a, you know, since then, the, um, the military and the security services of Uganda have been central to the way in which the government operation is set up. So many of the key figures in the Museveni administration from Museveni down were key officers and senior figures within the NRM, the rebel movement, as it was called. The president's son is a prominent uh, general in the military. Um, And so the military is a really important part of the way in which contemporary Ugandan politics is structured. But the military and the security services have also been important for the maintenance of um, power domestically. So increasingly over the last uh, 10 years or so, especially, we've seen the security services being deployed against protesters as the regime's legitimacy has become increasingly questioned. Um, And, uh, you know, in basically uh, putting down uh, opposition protests or opposition efforts to challenge the government in different ways. So the military is very important in a place like Uganda, and peacekeeping is very important 
linked to that because peacekeeping provides an opportunity for, well, provides the opportunity for lots of different things because it is, um, you know, seen understandably so as a morally good thing to be doing because you're attempting to keep the peace um, in different parts of, of the continent and the world. It enjoys a legitimacy in the international system, which therefore can attract a great deal of support from uh, different players, particularly Western powers, but not not purely Western powers. So through that, it's possible to accrue funding for um to pay the salaries of some uh, soldiers in the Ugandan army, for example, but also to access professional training, both uh, you know academic uh, and you know professional for for soldiers as well. There's a prestige associated to that to go on these training courses and to improve your um, your CV, if you like, your skill set. If you're a Ugandan soldier engaged in peacekeeping, um, there's also um, you know a kind of uh, sense that if you are engaged in peacekeeping as an authoritarian African state, then you also have the opportunity to keep soldiers busy, if in effect that you you, it's possible to basically um, avoid lots and lots of well qualified military people sitting in their barracks at home, potentially plotting um, or having some sort of nefarious ideas about how to engage in politics. So peacekeeping can also be quite a valuable way to um, get soldiers out of politics domestically, um, but also to subsidize the security state as well. So Uganda, we we think, is one of the particularly important examples of that. Uh, But we also talk about the case of Burundi in the book, where we see um, a similar dynamic. Um, And indeed, in the case of Burundi, we've seen very large parts of the army being circulated into peacekeeping operations over the years, which has, um, you know, been you know, really critical for a, con- a country like Burundi, which has been emerging in conflict um, over the last, um, uh, you know, 10, 15 years or so. Interesting. And I think that raises a really good point, because it is about this idea of kind of risk and reward. Um, what do you get for participating in peacekeeping um, in terms of perception from other actors? Um, and what risk does it maybe help you avoid But you also do talk about instances or ways in which countries might see that the deployment of personnel in peacekeeping actually might be a risk for ruling regimes. What could that look like? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that this is one of the the key points about thinking about African states using peacekeeping in an instrumental fashion, that uh, it doesn't always play out in that way. I think, the, you know, the, in the case of Uganda, the Ugandan government is very skilled at the international system. It's, it has a lot of practice in engaging in foreign policy. And it also has a very savvy sense of how the um, the army and different actors domestically are thinking about the political um, situation and their view of the government. But as you say, there's there's also a risk involved in engaging in peacekeeping as well. There's been some really excellent research, which we talk about in the book by um, Maggie Dwyer and various other scholars into the relationship between engaging in peacekeeping and mutinies and coups, particularly in West Africa, which has experienced quite a significant number of coups over the last, um, well, 40 or 50 years, to be honest. Um, And the way in which this might work is, for example, if you're a state that's involved in um, a multi-country peacekeeping mission and the soldiers discover, you know, from one country, let's say, that um, they're being paid less than 
other soldiers from other countries in that mission. And this is quite possible because the UN will often publish its its pay rates effectively. So it is possible for soldiers to find out how much their colleagues from other countries get paid, even if their government is not passing on that information. Then that can lead to a lot of um, uh, frustration and anger that they're you know they're doing the same job but they're not being paid the same, even if it's ultimately the same funder. So that's led to a range of mutinies in in different cases. Um, there's also um, you know the, the question of what more senior officers do with the funds that they receive from from the UN, from the African Union, and from other actors as well. So one of the things that we we see, and uh, you know, Burkina Faso um, is is a useful example of this in you know in, in more recent years, as well as 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 Guinea Bissau as well. Both again, West Africa is a sense of kind of corruption amongst more senior actors within the military and security services that they're in some way kind of pocketing some of the the pay that comes in in relation to peacekeeping, again, creating this um, resentment and uh, the conditions for mutiny or indeed um, some sort of coup attempt as well. And the important, there's an important historical context to this as well, which is in West Africa, uh, West Africa is a region of Africa which experienced, as I've said, a range of coups dating back to the 1960s. But one of the things we saw in the 1980s is that the the primary movers in these coups were no longer, in most cases, you know, senior generals and those sorts of people, but they were much more mid-level and even junior-level officers in places like uh, Liberia um, and, and, and elsewhere. And so the the feelings and perceptions and actions of the more junior officers in West African militaries has often been linked to mutinies and coup attempts in recent decades as well. So peacekeeping and the dynamics I've just described can play into that. I think one other final thing on this question about the risk to states is the question about what peacekeepers learn from other peacekeepers when they are outside of the country and in a different environment. So Philip Cunliffe, for example, has has talked about the the case of the Gambia um, in the early 1990s, where a range of actors who came back from a peacekeeping mission were actually involved in a coup which overthrew the uh, the ruling president. And part of the argument around that is that they sort of established this sense that they had a unique responsibility as uh military officers to protect the sort of integrity of um, politics and, and the state and uh, and so forth, this kind of Praetorian idea of what the role of the military was. And then they took that back home and uh, overthrew the government because of what they saw as corruption. So there is a risk, there is a risk in, you know, having uh, a large contingent of your military abroad, if you don't know necessarily what they're talking about and what lessons they're learning from that as well, particularly if you don't have a particularly, you know, heavy handle on power. So when we talk about, again, reasons why countries would send soldiers to do peacekeeping, um, we've talked so far about the sort of domestic reasons why that might be an incentive or disincentive. But how has peacekeeping enabled some African countries to boost their legitimacy outside of their own borders, um, as well as end up changing the parameters of what counts as peacekeeping? Yeah, I think um, peacekeeping is is one of the practices in international relations, which is very much associated with um, global good. Um, it's morally seen as, as something uh, 
good for the international system. So countries that do engage and contribute troops to peace operations are also seen as, let's say, um, legitimate uh, citizens of the international order. Um, they're contributing to maintaining a specific order, um, contributing to promoting peace. Um, so just by the fact that a state is willing to contribute and actually risk um, its own troops into a peacekeeping operations um, puts it at an advantage on an international scene. It gives it the status as a state that is willing to contribute to something greater than the narrow self-interest um, that's often uh, the aspect that's that's driving states to act in different ways in the international system. So already that um, premise that participating in international peacekeeping, you contribute to a global good, to um, an international uh, stability, to create international peace. Already from that starting point, states which decide to contribute troops, they are automatically let's say, elevating themselves to another status uh, on the international arena. Um, and then you can talk about which states contribute troops and, and um, in which uh, context they do that. Um, we have, for example, looked more specifically at um, Rwanda as, as one, of this, one of those states that contribute a lot of troops and has done that for the last, let's say, um, 15 years now, um, a state which itself had gone through um, a genocide and before that a civil war, which was very much considered as um, a victim uh, on the international arena, but which then decided to, at a specific moment in time, to contribute troops. And basically what we say in, in what we argue in the book then is that they're going from the status of being a peace-kept um, country, so a country that's hosting a UN a UN mission, to becoming a peacekeeping uh, state, so contributing itself to uh, keeping peace somewhere else. And for the case with Rwanda, um, the context and the timing is important. Um, that plays into the legitimacy that Rwanda has as a peacekeeping state, um, because R Rwanda decided to contribute troops um, to the UN mission in Darfur in in two thousand and eight, just after um, the U.S. State Department declared that there was a genocide going on in in the region, um, and Rwanda as a state that had just experienced, or, or ten years earlier, a little bit more that had experienced a genocide um, intervened um, as a peacekeeping country to stop a genocide in uh, in another country. So it was very um, Rwanda, I think Rwanda did this in a strategic point of view at a specific time, which um, gained um, them legitimacy on the international arena as a state that not only had been peacekept and went to become a peacekeeping state, but also uh, a peacekeeping state that intervened in a moment uh, that was particularly important to stop a genocide in another state. And through that practice, then, Rwanda managed to gain a lot of legitimacy and status on the international arena. Mm. And again, staying on the theme of incentives, why... How does training received and processes inherent in peacekeeping participation, for example, uh, financial support or materiel, 
impact why countries choose to participate. Jonathan's already mentioned earlier um, that an individual soldier might be motivated by receiving, for example, higher pay. But how does that sort of translate at the national level for why countries might want to get involved in peacekeeping? Yeah, of course, there is the financial um, incentive to participate for certain states um, which can contribute with their own um, military equipment, um, but then they get reimbursed from the UN or the AU uh, for using that equipment in, in an operation. So there is an incentive then to modernize its own military equipment. And now I'm, I'm speaking only about the financial and material incentives. Um, and then there is the financial incentive related to the um, allowances that the individual peacekeepers get that, that Jonathan mentioned earlier. And we also know that there are um, quite a few governments who take a piece or a chunk of, of that allowance um, from the soldiers, individual ones, um, to go straight into um, the government's or the Ministry of Defense uh, budget. And we've seen that in, in Burundi, but we've also seen it in, in other states where, where part of that allowance is is um, let's say taken off um, and uh, as part of a sort of a administrative fee from from the Ministry of, of Defense or the government itself. Um, so there is of course the financial incentive because of the allowances. Um, it's also a way I think to maintain loyalty from the troops. The fact that they can be t- deployed for these different um, peacekeeping operations that are of course financially lucrative for the individual soldiers. It also makes it more attractive to stay in the army and stay loyal to um, a specific um, regime or a government. Mm. And what should listeners be aware of considering China's engagement with African peacekeeping? Um, yeah, this is something we, we touch on a little bit in the book. I mean, a lot of the, the support, external support that African peacekeeping missions uh, you know, accrue or um, have are principally from Western governments, uh, institutions, uh, the EU, the US, the UK, France, etc. But it is important to think about the wider context of uh, uh, external involvement in African peacekeeping in different ways. Uh, And I think when we're thinking about China's involvement, I'd probably say that there are two particularly important things that people should keep in mind. The first would probably be that this is very much an, an evolving situation. China has been engaged in Africa in a variety of different ways for many decades, but its involvement in peacekeeping is quite new and is also changing quite quickly. One of the examples that we give of this in the book is the Chinese government's changing perspectives on uh, intervention and the the kind of responsibility to protect norm. You know, there's been a long-standing part of Chinese foreign policy which has been about sort of respecting or um, uh, you know, recognizing the sovereignty of particular countries and their right to effectively not have external parties uh, interfering in their internal political dynamics. And this was the criticism that China received um, back in the early 2000s for its support for, for example, um, the Sudanese government of Omar al-Bashir, uh, you know, that it was basically giving um, support military and otherwise, which was being used to um, fund uh, counterinsurgencies and even uh, genocide in the case of Darfur. 
But the Chinese perspective on this evolved quite considerably um, by the mid to late 2000s when the Chinese um, basically came to see that their own interests were being threatened, their own interests in Sudan were being threatened by the political and uh, conflict crisis, uh, you know, in times of Chinese workers, you know, engaged in um, industry there and so on and so forth. So they increasingly put pressure on the Sudanese government to accept a UN peacekeeping mission. So we see there quite a significant and, you know, more recently, we've seen China actually quite um, uh, enthusiastic about responsibility to protect in the case of, of Mali. So we see a quite a significant evolution in the Chinese position in, in a quite a short space of time. So it's I think it's important to keep in mind that what we think about China's engagement in African peacekeeping now is not necessarily going to be the, you know, the same in you know, a few years time particularly since the wider Chinese engagement in Africa is is growing um, very, very significantly. If we think about the rise in China's economic footprint in Africa just in the last decade or so, the increase has been um, massive compared to the footprint of uh, Western powers uh, as well. Within um, peacekeeping itself, the Chinese involvement is still not particularly significant compared to Western powers, but again, it is it's growing. So it, there's a you know evolving dimension of this. The other aspect of this is that it's important not to think about China's engagement in African peacekeeping through the same lens or lenses as we do um, the West. So there is quite a lot of literature and analysis which argues that China's engagement in in Africa is quite instrumental. It's quite um, cynical based on resources and increasing its political hegemony. And I'm sure there's lots of truth to that. But equally, that's, that's very much the lens through which we've often seen Western engagement in security in Africa. And I think it's important to not always subject other countries to that particular lens. What's interesting, for example, as as a range of scholars have noticed, um, is that some of the um, support that China provides in the peacekeeping sphere is somewhat different to what we see from Western powers. So there's much more emphasis on uh, human resource capacity, you know, public administration, media training and workshops for for peacekeepers and and so on and so forth. So we see a a different set of priorities in the funding to a certain extent. But China's also positioned itself in a variety of international fora, including the UN, um, as a sort of defender of African ownership of peacekeeping. So they've also positioned themselves more as a, um, you know, a, a a, a country in the global south, if you like, or a, a country that was itself the victim of imperialism and colonialism to some extent, which again marks it out somewhat from Western perspectives and lenses on Africa and African peacekeeping. Interesting. And I think that speaks to a lot of these aspects of, um, again, it's the practical pieces of money and weapons and people going from place to place, but also kind of how this interacts with much larger political contexts and discussions. Um, So thank you for bringing that in. Um, And to sort of continue on this trend of expanding out, uh, we've talked a lot about individual countries, um, but you also in the book talk about regional forums. How do they relate to and in fact, complicate continental norms and understandings of African peacekeeping. Yeah, I think um, in the book we're we're trying to show how the regionalization 
and that Africa has experienced. And, and we we identify two, uh, at least two waves of regionalization. Um, a term that we understand as referring to the creation of ideational and governance blocks um, focused around regional rather than national identity. Um, that these waves has have coincided with two different um, events. The first one or processes, the first one is the de- decolonization process and then the evolving Pan-Africa movement of the 1960s, which drove this uh, sort of regionalized um, wave. And the second wave then taking off at the end of the Cold War. Um, so both of these regionalization waves were to some extent um, driven by a continental desire to distance Africa from external actors and to create more of a continental African identity, or as has been the case, uh, often become the case, uh, multiple regional identities. Um, But our analysis shows then that even while there is this discourse of a continental um, identity, there have been challenges um, from especially then the African Union um, and the African regional economic communities, the RECs, um, to become more than the sum of their parts. So we can see that there is challenges um, between members of these different regional organizations, um, either to have the position as the hegemon or um, to be the one that's driving uh, the evolution and the development of um, the specific regional organization, which undermines um, this continental identity. You can also see that at some uh, at some specific moments there have been um, tensions between the continental identity uh, symbolized or exemplified by the African Union and one of the wrecks uh, in in how to handle a crisis and we can uh, we can see the Mali Malian example where um, the West African wreck the uh, ECOWAS uh, and the African Union didn't really um, handled the crisis in the same way and where there was a bit of a competition about who who had the lead in in this type of of um in this particular um crisis so we can see that there are still um competing interests both national and regional in in the different recs about who is driving these agendas and what what is driving them and that's of course undermining continental norms of of pan-africanism um but also uh, perhaps security norms more broadly about how to, to deal with different crises when there is a competition of, of who's, who's taking the lead in these types of, um, in these types of developments and processes. So I'd love to pick up on that, right? You mentioned Pan-Africanism. Um, and... You actually argue in the book that, quote, when analyzing African peacekeeping, the language of Pan-Africanism obscures as much as it reveals. So given that we've now sort of brought it up and it's already sort of in tension with these regional economic forums um, and as well as national interests, can you tell us more about Pan-Africanism in the context of peacekeeping? Um, Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that We've, we've kind of taken on board over the last decade or so of, of working in Africa and 
collaborating with with African researchers and colleagues is that the Pan-Africanism is a it's a deeply complex and in lots of ways contested concept. And in some in some ways, it doesn't really make sense to talk about Pan-Africanism. It's it's also Pan-Africanisms as well. Um, and it, this is particularly the case in the context of African foreign policy and and politics, principally I think because there is a and we talk about this in the book. There's a, a real tension between the the kind of universalizing uh, solidarity based aspirational um, anti colonial uh, tenets that underpin Pan Africanism, but also you know versus the more statist setup that we see in contemporary Africa and which really took hold from um, independence onwards. And this is partly uh, a legacy of the, of the way in which Pan-Africanism came into being. And we go, we go into a little bit of depth on that in, in the book, that Pan-Africanism originally as a set of ideas was championed and, and promulgated and debated by peoples of African descent living largely outside of Africa. It became obviously very significant as a mobilizing force in the various struggles against colonialism and imperialism. But when African countries became independent, you suddenly went from a kind of unified battle against colonialism to lots of different polities all having their own you know, borders and, and rules and leaders and, and all that sort of thing. And so there was a tension from, from early on, the OAU Organization of African Unity level about what what form the future of Africa should take. Should it be a sort of union, if you like, or you know, a, a, a pan-African continental political union, or should pan-Africanism be more something which is a shared broader aspiration, but which doesn't undermine um, the political sovereignty and borders of particular countries? And we saw this emerge early on in the in a split within the the OAU between those more kind of aspirational continents, uh, continental-wide Pan-Africanists and those who were more focused on maintaining sovereignty. And that tension is even in the the founding charter of of the OAU. And scholars have also argued in in various ways that even some of the the principal advocates of Pan-Africanism politically over the years, so Kwame Nkrumah uh, in Ghana or um, Thabo Mbeki in South Africa, that when they've talked about pan-Africanism, they've also instrumentalized it to some extent to um, promote the uh, the ideas and centrality of their own state and its its prominence and significance as a you know a leading center of um, of Africa, effectively. So Ghana in the the 1960s and South Africa in the 1990s. So Gilbert Kadiagal has written some really interesting stuff on this, that um, how they've, ch- they've turned Pan-Africanism into essentially a status project. And the reason why this is, this is relevant to peacekeeping is that essentially it's very much a, a norm in African politics to subscribe to Pan-Africanism as, a, as an ideology and as an aspiration as well. And that translates, uh, you know, as Nina was just discussing, to um, commitment to regional, continental collaboration and breaking down those national boundaries. But of course, in reality, most African governments are pretty obsessed with maintaining the integrity of their territory, uh, maintaining their authority over what's happening there, um, and in some cases competing with other states in particular regions for 
um, for hegemony or economic or security dominance. So we, of, we often see in the peacekeeping sphere what uh, then Sue Mumford has re- recently called a, a rhetorical trap that African governments will fall into, that rhetorically they commit themselves to pan-Africanism in the context of peacekeeping and security, but practically speaking, they also don't want to surrender too much of their sovereignty and control over um, you know, what their government is going to be doing in the context of wider regional aspirations and, and, and uh, commitments. Which is not to say, uh, and I think this is a really important point, that African leaders or governments use pan-Africanism in a cynical way. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure that some do, uh, but I think it's possible for this rhetorical trap to exist um, both, you know, for these tensions to exist simultaneously, that there is a kind of deep-seated commitment to pan-Africanism, but when that is um, operationalized in the context of peacekeeping, some of these tensions at its heart come out. I think that's really helpful to um, untangle some of the rhetoric and understand the places it can come from and also to add nuance um, to the understanding as you've both done throughout the interview and really throughout the book to um, in some ways complicate but really usefully complicate um, the idea of African peacekeeping that it's not monolithic um, and that these tensions come from a number of different places so thank you very much for um, explaining some of the key aspects of the book, though obviously we can't go into every single detail or example. Um, there are many more for listeners who are interested um, if you want to read the book. Um, so to move sort of to kind of the behind the scenes aspect of it, um, this obviously was something you've both been working on in this is coming out of both of your individual research agendas. Um, and this book you've also been working on together for quite a long time. Um, and so you know it really well. There's a lot of detail. and There's probably a lot of things that didn't end up getting included in the book. So I was wondering if you could let us in behind the scenes a bit and maybe each share something you found surprising that you came through, came up during the process. Uh, it can be something big, small, um, you know, something you found or something you realized. Um, but I always think it's really interesting to hear from the people who are closest to the subject. Um, Nina, perhaps we could start with you. Um, I think that for me, uh, who hadn't done that much uh, historical research, let's say, um, it was really interesting to see the extent um, of which African armies have been involved in, in different um, conflicts and wars on other continents historically. Um, so that's what we're covering in, in the first chapter. Um, I thought that was r- really interesting, and it was also a new um for me, it was a new aspect uh, uh, for someone who has studied African militaries for, for quite some time. That aspect I hadn't delved into uh, myself. Um, Jonathan had done more work on that earlier, but for me, that was a new aspect. And I thought that that was very interesting to see that this is, uh, that's also what we try to to argue in the book, that this is not something that started in the 1990s that we have, um, that we've seen that there is um um, a passive dependency, if we want to say that, um, from, from earlier areas of, of African um, armies being deployed to different uh, conflict theaters in different positions, not necessarily as a peace operation, but in different um, in different functions and ways. So for me, that, that was also um, an interesting discovery. What things that didn't uh, 
make it into the book? Well, I had written a much longer acknowledgement uh, section, which uh, Jonathan um, <laughs> decided to, to cut shorter. Um, but Jonathan, perhaps you would like to elaborate on that. <laughs> yeah, maybe I won't mention more of the acknowledgements, but uh, I, was, I was quite happy with what we ended up with ultimately. Um, I mean, I think for me, what, what um, yeah... I mean, as, as you say, there's lots of nuances to this this topic. Um, and with us calling it African peacekeeping, that it wasn't to, to suggest that there was a single form of peacekeeping that is undertaken by African states or that there's a particular, um, you know, es- essence to peacekeeping by or in Africa. It was more just, a, you know, we're focusing on peacekeeping by Africans. Um, and we accepted that that took and does take lots of different forms. But I still think that I was uh, quite surprised by um, just a variety of, of activities and contexts in which um, African states do and do not engage in, in peacekeeping. So I said already that my, uh, and this is uh, true for Nina to some extent as well, um, I've focused a lot on East Africa and Southern Africa, uh, whereas my knowledge of uh, some other parts of the continent is, you know, un- you know, understandably less. So particularly uh, some of the um, former Portuguese colonies, Lusophone states. And one of the things that I was quite interested in during the research for this book is why um, states like Mozambique and particularly Angola, which is um, a very economically significant, um, politically significant African state, don't really engage in in peacekeeping, um, and I think that that's that's something which we still haven't quite gotten to the bottom of. Um, it's obviously partly to do with their own experiences of UN peacekeeping um, uh, in the sort of post-conflict or mid-conflict period. But I think yeah, just that variety and some of those anomalies um, like Angola and Mozambique, I found particularly interesting and and surprising. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think it's always really interesting, and particularly in a case when you've got a book with two authors, how you can bring different things into it and complement to kind of add more. So thank you for sharing that. Um, And then for the traditional last question, this book has just come out, but as you both introduced yourselves, you're working on quite a number of things. Um, You have a lot of research interests. So either whether it's together or separately, what are you working on now or next? Uh, well, I think um, Nina and I have actually been talking about our next project. Um, whether or not we get round to uh, doing it anytime soon is another matter. But we're, we are quite interested, both of us, in uh, governments and that emerged from rebel movements. So, uh, you know, I mentioned Uganda towards the beginning of the interview, but we're also very interested in, in South Africa um, and the, um, the South African military and particularly the... Um, where the fighters from the African National Congress sort of military wing and Kontowe Siswe ended up in the in the contemporary period, particularly female combatants, because many African liberation movements, armed liberation movements, um, had a prominent involvement by uh, by women and female combatants, you know, as fighters, not just as um, you know parts of the civilian apparatus. And so I, we're, we're talking about trying to, to do a little bit of research on what happened to uh, some of those women in terms of, you know, in the post-apartheid era. You know, did they go off into the military? Did they return to civilian life? Did they end up in politics? Because we know quite a lot about um, prominent men in, in, in that situation, but perhaps not so much about, uh, about women. 
that sounds like a fascinating next project. Um, I do hope that that becomes a book at some point, and maybe you can come back and do an interview about that one. Um, but while you go off and work on that, because I think it's probably going to take some time to excavate all that information, um, listeners can read your current book, which is titled African Peacekeeping, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.